What do you see when you look at your city? What do you see when you look at your church? What do you see when you look at yourself? Do you see nothing but broken piles of junk and rubble? Because when God looks at you, he sees a future and a hope. The Bible tells the story of Nehemiah, a man whose heart broke when he saw the ruined walls of Jerusalem. But in that rubble, he also saw hope. He saw the tools to rebuild. It's time to see our city the way God sees it. It's time to see our churches the way God sees them. It's time to see ourselves the way God sees us. It's time to rebuild. We not only welcome the student impact team returning uh, last week, but uh, just a couple days, or over the last, this weekend, uh, we welcome back our Hurricane Harvey relief team that were down uh, along the Texas coast. And uh, if you see people wearing an orange shirt that's a Samaritan's purse, I see Gus wearing one right there, you got to stop one of them and ask them about what God did on that trip. Powerfully impactful trip. Impactful in the sense that God used our team to minister to the people down there, but powerful in terms of the impact it had on the people on our team uh, going down there. Samaritan's Purse, wonderful ministry, reaching out to people. I'm sure we're going to be partnering with them again. Well, you may wonder what this is. Uh, There are probably not too many people here in this hour who are, should we say, mature enough to remember this. But uh, this, is, this is actually the window. You see it in the picture up on the screen there, or coming up on the screen. This is the picture out of the old central church on Linden Avenue in downtown Memphis. This is a couple campuses ago. And at that time, central church was known as Central Cumberland Presbyterian Church. And we, uh, we found this, uh, Sean found this up in the attic. We have been looking at our history as a church, as part of the transition team. Why? Because where we come from is tremendously important to where we are now. And the values that started, the values that Central Church was birthed out of have much to do with the way that we operate now. Why is it that we have the form of church government that we have? Why is it that we have the certain doctrinal points that we have? Well, you can trace much of it back to when God started Central, at that time, Central Cumberland Presbyterian Church. You may or may not know this about Central Church. Um, Some of you, this may be even a, a revelation that we used to be a Cumberland Presbyterian Church. But Central was born out of a revival, a month long revival down along the river in downtown Memphis in August of 1896. What that revival came out of, though, is what God was doing at that time through the Cumberland Presbyterian denomination. I wish I could say that has continued to this day, what God was doing in that denomination at that time. I can't confidently say that. But back then, at that time, God was working wonders through the Cumberland Presbyterian denomination. While Central was born out of a revival in 1896, The Cumberland Presbyterian denomination was born out of a wave of revivals that swept across Kentucky and Tennessee from about 1797 to 1801. And the most visible sign were what at that time were known as camp meetings. Maybe the most famous one you might have heard of, the Cane Ridge Camp Meeting. What is revival? I could go on and on about the history of 
central in the history of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. But I want to focus, I want to target down today because it comes right, it brings us to where we are in Nehemiah, to this word revival. What does revival mean? I think for many of us, especially if you've grown up in the South, revival is that, you know, that week in July or August when when Southern Baptist churches put up tents and they bring in a special speaker and they call that a revival. That can be a product of revival, but that in and of itself is not what the word means. Think of the word revival. Re, again, or anew, and vive. You may know this from your Spanish or your Latin life. To bring to life again. To bring a new life. Revival, you know, think of it how we use it in terms of, you know, that guy fell in the river, he went under the water, he, he was near dead when they dragged him out, but they managed to revive him. What are they saying? They're bringing someone who is very close to death back to life again. That's, that's the meaning of the word. Revival is about what God begins to do in the hearts of believers when our hearts have grown kind of cold to the Lord and the things of the Lord. And here's the reality. Throughout church history, throughout the centuries, God's people have gone through, through cycles where their spiritual life, their spiritual fervor deteriorates to the point where it's almost dead. It's like that guy drowning in the pond when you drag him out. But God in His mercy and His grace, He moves in such a powerful way that those with cold hearts, they're revived. They're brought back spiritually to a vibrant place again. They're brought back to spiritual life. This is what Jesus talked about when He speaks to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2. You have lost your first love. He's speaking to believers and what is He saying? You need revival. You, you are almost dead spiritually. And, and it, what does He say? Return to the things that you did at first. He's talking about what revival looks like. Well, what does all this history have to do with where we are in Nehemiah chapter 8 today? Because that's what we see in Nehemiah beginning in chapter 8. And if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open to Nehemiah 8. We will get there in just a second. But I I would briefly summarize all of the first seven chapters, what we've looked at up to this point as rebuilding the wall. And, And if you've been here, you've known that. Week after week, we've talked about this miracle of of roughly 2,000 people, maybe less, building two miles worth of wall, rebuilding the city. That's the first seven chapters. But now the second half of the book, chapters 8 through 13, we see something new. If chapters 1 through 7 were about rebuilding the wall, chapters 8 through 13 are about God reviving the people who are going to live within the wall. I mean, we've, we've said it, or we've seen it in all these, these first seven chapters. It's never about just building a city with good defenses. It's about God's desire that His glory would shine forth from that city. And so the city did need to be rebuilt as part of that. But even more, God's people needed to be revived who were going to live in that city. And that's what we see God beginning to do and especially chapter 8 and chapter 9 in two weeks. He is beginning to revive His people. And that speaks directly, very honestly, that speaks to us here today. Because rebuilding a church is not just about numbers and attendance. It's not just about programming. It's not just about who's in, in what position and staffing and leadership. 
Rebuilding a church is about what God wants to do in our hearts, each one of us. Rebuilding a church is about the revival that God wants to bring to Central Church. And that's, that's something that as a transition team we're talking about, that's something that, that I pray for, that above everything else that we want to do in this transitional period that we're in, we want to see God revive. We want to see God bring revival to our church. We want to see God bring revival to each one of us, to each one of our hearts, to take any coldness in our hearts and set it on fire for the Lord again. Well, we see this beginning in chapter 8. And as God begins this work of revival, of reviving the hearts of His people, He begins with a man who, this is the first time we've heard Him mention in Nehemiah, Ezra, as, as verse 1 opens of chapter 8. Ezra has been around the whole time. In fact, if you read the book right before Nehemiah, Ezra, it's all about Ezra, this, this, this faithful priest that God brought to Jerusalem 13 years before Nehemiah, how he served faithfully, how he was used by God to lead the rebuilding of the temple. And he's been here in Nehemiah, but he's been in the background. He's been supporting Nehemiah's leadership. He's been waiting and praying for revival. And now as the walls are rebuilt and God begins to bring revival, God pushes Ezra to the front. Ezra is described to us in verse 1 as, as a scribe. And in that capacity, what does a scribe do? He preserves the Word of God. He preserves, at that time, the parts of the Old Testament that they have. He did that by meticulously copying, producing accurate copies of the Word of God. But verse 2, which I don't think is on your screen there, verse 2 also says that Ezra is a priest. He's not only a scribe, he's a priest. As a priest, he studies the Word that he is meticulously copying. As a priest, he teaches the Word that he has studied to the people around him. And, and here we see that God has been faithfully using Ezra all along. In fact, just one brief verse from Ezra, again, not on the screen, Ezra 7.10, tells us about this man's ministry up to this point. It says, "...the gracious hand of God was on Ezra because he devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws to Israel." So now, as the wall is rebuilt and God begins to stir revival and His people, He calls Ezra to the stage. And friends, let me just say this. Whenever there has been a cycle of revival anywhere in church history, God has always used men like Ezra to faithfully not just preserve, but to teach and to preach His Word. And it is the teaching and preaching of the Word. That's not the only thing, but it is an essential thing that ignites the desire for revival in the hearts of God's people. So what we see God doing here through Ezra, God wants to do through, through many of us here in this church. God wants the Word to be taught as we're going to see the Word to be stood upon, the Word to be relied upon, and God uses that to ignite the fire of revival in a church. That's what we see here. The setting of chapter 8, just before we proceed any further. Remember, if we back up two weeks ago to Nehemiah chapter 6, what did we see? 6.15, the wall was finished in 52 days. Two miles of wall built with manual labor, by a force of people probably less than 2,000 all together. That's, that's roughly what it was. 
That is a humanly impossible feat. And so as chapter 8 opens, you know what I think is going on? I think that what's going on is these people, it begins to dawn on them as they look around and they see the finished walls all around them that they didn't do this by themselves. That the God who called them to do this work empowered them to do this work. And by the way, that's a point for you and for me. When God calls us to do something, when we see in His Word Him calling us to do something, and we commit to doing that, He empowers us to do it. Even if it's a humanly impossible thing, He empowers us to do what He calls us to do and what we commit ourselves to do. And so, the experience of God's power, I think it has begun to warm their hearts. These hearts of these people who been, have been cold to the things of God, as they look and they see what God has done working through them, they, they start to turn to God. They want to know, who is this God who enabled us to do this? What is He like? How can we relate to Him? And so we see, as verse 1 begins, we see them doing something they have never done before. They've never had even any interest in doing this before. Verse 1, all the people, they come together, they gather together in the plaza, in this public place. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book. Bring out the book of the law of Moses. I love that phrase. Ezra, bring out the book. The book of the law of Moses, that's the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's what we know as the Pentateuch. It's, it's, it's the books that in which God reveals what He is like to the people of Israel and how He wants them to relate to Him. That's the book of the law of Moses. And they call to Him. He's not, he's not the one coming to them saying, I, I want to read this to you now. They're calling to Him. Bring out the book. Bring out the book. And I believe that's a sign of revival, that God is beginning that work of revival. When God begins to revive our hearts, we hunger for God's Word. God's Word doesn't have to be pressed on us. God's Word doesn't have to be forced on us. We seek it out. We want it. We want to hear it. We want to hear it read and taught and, and explained to us. Just like the Jews in Nehemiah's time, maybe we have had up to that point absolutely no interest in reading God's Word. Maybe you grew up in church and God's Word was read all the time. You sat through Sunday school classes. You sat through sermons and you've heard it over and over again and, and you are tuned out most of the time. When God begins to do that work of revival in your heart, suddenly you can't get enough of it. Suddenly you hunger for it and you thirst for it. Like the Jews, you, you want to know this God who has saved you. You want to know what He is like. You want to know how it is that He determined to send His Son that through His work of grace to take upon Himself your sins, our sins, and to impute to you His righteousness. You want to know that. You can't get enough of that. And we see the depth of their hunger in verses 2 and 3. On the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. He read aloud from daybreak till noon in the presence of the men and women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Did you get that? Apparently, Ezra read for six hours. And the people assembled stood there and they listened attentively. 
Now, here's the reality. I, I read this just this, this week uh, about your, you and me, where we are with our attention span. What I read this week is that every three minutes, our attention span kind of wanes and our thoughts go off in another direction and maybe we can bring it back. But, you know, I've been preaching, what, maybe six, six, nine minutes. You've already wandered off two or three times. Right? That is the reality. Now, can you, can you, can you apply that to, to hearing the Word for six hours? That is not humanly possible unless the Spirit of God is doing such a work that people are drawn to it. They can't get enough of it. In the Welch Revival in 1904 and 1905 in Wales, God moved in those couple of years in those communities throughout those churches where people would go to church night after night. And even though nothing was planned, the Word would be read or people would pray, and the people, you couldn't make them go home. They'd stay till 3 or 4 or 5 a.m. in the morning. Why? Because the Spirit of God was doing something that we look at and say, humanly, that would never happen. That's what happens as God brings revival. That depth of hunger for God's Word. Now, verses 4 and 6, they're not on your screen. I hope you have your Bibles open in front of you. They describe practically what that might have looked like. Verse 4, Ezra stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. And he had on his right, he had six men. And on his left, he had seven other men whose names I'm not going to attempt to pronounce. These men were likely priests and Levites. We're told that some of them were Levites a little later on. I think it's very possible that these men may have taken turns reading with Ezra. I mean, I'm, I'm hoarse after, after 40 minutes of, of, of preaching. I can't imagine reading publicly without amplification for six hours. So it may very well have been, I can't say for sure, that these men may have spelled Ezra. They may have stepped in and take over reading for a while, and then Ezra resumed it. That's possible of what their role was up on the stage. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. And here we see kind of a model for, for what pastors do. When they stand at a pulpit on a raised platform before a gathered congregation to preach God's word. We also see this amazing thing as God's word begins to be read, the people stand up. Apparently, they stay standing for the whole six hours. Have you ever been in a place where God's word is revered to the point where people stand when it is read? That's the kind of work that was going on in their hearts. In verse 6, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I think it's very important to note about these people and, and to note for us as well, they weren't worshiping the Bible. We're not Bible idolaters worshiping the Bible. We are worshiping the God who the Bible reveals. We love the Bible because it reveals God. It reveals Jesus. It reveals the Gospel to us. And so our reverence for the Word is not just that that's some holy book in and of itself. It's that this is God revealing Himself. We love God. We worship God. We don't worship the Bible. Verse 7, the seven Levites, again, their names that I won't pronounce, they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. 
Here's some speculation on my part, but this may have been what it looked like. I think this may have been one of the first small group models. I think these 13 Levites, I think they went out into the crowd. And I think they dispersed themselves in the crowd and a Levite would come up to a certain group of people in the crowd and they'd kind of gather around him and another Levite would go another place in the crowd and those people would gather around him and the Scripture would be read and then there'd be a pause and the Levites in those circles of the people in the crowd would, would, would explain it to them. This is, this is what it means. They'd translate it to them. This is what it says. Maybe they'd take questions. I can't prove that, but... I think that may very well have been what's going on when it says the Levites helped the people to understand uh, the to understand the law, and, and that's why we're thankful when we have people who have studied uh, either self-study or gone off somewhere and studied and are able to come back. And whether it's in a small group model or whether it's in a Sunday morning class model or some other kind of study model, they're able to take it a little further than we could maybe in our natural reading of it. They're able to help us understand what it is that we're reading. And that all leads to my second point. When God begins to revive our hearts, when He begins to do that work of revival, we prioritize the exposition of the Word. It becomes important to us that the Word is preached, that the Word is taught, in all of the settings that it is. Our hunger for the Word of God, it can only be satisfied when what we're hearing or what we're reading is taught and explained to us so that we understand what it means. We understand what that author meant when he wrote it to his original audience. We understand as much as we can what God was doing when He inspired that writer to write that, to speak to us. That's what we call expository preaching. And that's what we value here at Central. There are other models of preaching and they all have validity to them. But an expository preaching model takes the Word of God, goes through it section by section systematically, seeks to explain it. What does it mean? Seeks to take that explanation a step further and says, what does this mean to you? How do you apply this? How do you live in light of this? What does it mean for the way this Scripture works its way out in your life. We read in verse 8 that they read the book of the law of God translating to give the sense so that the people could understand what was read. That's the New American Standard. Maybe you have a, a version of the Bible that instead of translating, it says interpreting. I think translation's the best reading. Again, a little bit of educated speculation here, but... But these people, they'd come from Babylon. Many of them raised in Babylon only spoke Chaldean. Others may have only spoken Aramaic, which was very common at the time. This, this book of the Law of Moses was written in Hebrew. There was a need for what Ezra was reading in Hebrew to be translated, to be put into the common language of the people. You and I, we take that for granted today. We have all our English translations. What we don't realize often is uh, the Old Testament that we can read in our English was written in Hebrew. The New Testament that we read in our English was written in Greek. And the translators of our English versions have, have functioned in the same way that the Levites were functioning here. They've brought those, th that language into our common language so that we can get the sense of it. We can understand what it means. 
And that's the work that was happening uh, at that time. That's what our English versions do for us. That's what our pastors and teach other teachers do for us. That's why we value when somebody learns the original languages of Hebrew and Greek because they're able to help us get a little more, a better of a sense of what it is that is being said by God and His Word. Why? Because we don't want to just hear the words. That's just rote, religious, pagan practice if we just hear the words and it stops there. No, we want to understand what these words that we are hearing mean. We want to understand the sense of it. We want to understand how it speaks to us. We want to understand how it points us to Christ. How is it that this Old Testament, this book of Nehemiah points us to Christ? That's the sense of it that we want to understand. We want to understand how we're to live it out in our lives for the glory of God. So let me ask you, do you have a, do you have a pattern of doing that? Uh, do you, do you, when, when the Word is taught, do you, do you take some kind of notes so that you can even look at it further on your own? Do you have an individual pattern, a personal pattern of intaking the Word, of intake of the Word? Do you have a reading plan or do you listen to it as you drive? And, and even beyond reading and listening to it, do you wrestle with it so that you don't walk away any day that you're reading the Word without getting something new and fresh from it? That all is evidence of the hunger for the Word that God stirs as He begins to bring revival. Uh, My third major point, when God begins to revive our hearts, we respond to God's Word. So the Word that we're hungry for, the Word that, that we value the exposition, the explanation of, that Word also produces in us a response. We see that Beginning in verse 9, Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. What was going on here? The word is read and they begin to cry? They begin to weep? What's going on here? Here's what's happening. This is, this is the first response that they had to the Word. There is a deep, deep moving of grief among the people as they hear the Word and they begin to understand what it means. Why? Because suddenly it dawns on them how unfaithful they have been. How unfaithful they and their parents and their grandparents have been. How they and their ancestors have largely turned away from God as they see now that he, he calls us to relate to Him and His Word. Here's an evidence of, of God stirring revival, that as we hear the Word, God does by His Holy Spirit a work of conviction. We read Scripture, and what happens? Things stand out to us. Maybe something you've read over and over again, but suddenly this day it pierces your heart and it gets behind your pride and it gets behind all the other defenses that you put up and suddenly you are wrecked by that. You are grieved by that. Not in a a guilt-inducing way, not in a shamed way, but in a way that that draws you to Christ in a way that that makes you recognize this gap between me and God. I, I, I want that bridged. It's a kind of grief that makes us reach out for Christ and all He's done. And as we're convicted, we respond with what the Bible calls godly sorrow. Not sorrow that focuses on on us and and our needs, but a sorrow that, that desires to have a restored relationship with God. 
Continuing on with verse 10, what does this produce? Well, actually, the second half of verse 10. We'll come back to the first half in a minute. What is it that Ezra and the priests say to the people who are, who are convicted, who are experiencing that godly sorrow? Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's quite a phrase. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That word strength is, is the Hebrew word that, that's often translated as fortress, as citadel, as refuge. Let me ask you this morning, when you're overcome by conviction, when you're overcome by godly sorrow, when you realize afresh how great that gap is between what God calls you to be and where you are, what's your refuge? Where's the place that you go for security and stability? Here it is, the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord. And what is meant by that phrase, just to be very precise, the joy of the Lord means the deep down assurance of peace and fellowship with God that is based upon His grace that is poured out on us through Christ and His forgiveness of our sins and His imparting to us of new life, new righteousness. That's where we find our refuge. That's where we find our fortress. That's where when I am overcome by grief of how short my life falls from what God calls me to be, that's where I go. The way I would phrase it is simply we respond by embracing the gospel. I I need the gospel every day preached to myself over and over again. I need that gospel, that life-transforming truth that I don't measure up. There's no way I can get myself there. But He comes down to me through Jesus Christ. He extends not only forgiveness, He extends His righteousness. He extends His new life. He fills me with His Holy Spirit enabling me to live for Him. That's the Gospel. That is what we need to embrace over and over again. And God does that in His work of revival as one of the responses to His Word. I'm convicted. I move to godly sorrow. I reach out and I embrace the Gospel afresh. Continuing on in verse 11, the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Don't be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, and they made great rejoicing, or they rejoiced greatly. Why? Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. When God begins to revive our hearts, we respond to what He is showing us in His Word by rejoicing. There is joy in recognizing the Gospel afresh. That I need that, and it's extended freely to me. There's joy in hearing what the God of the universe reveals to us through His Word. There is joy in learning something new in a passage that I've read dozens of times before. And this day, the Holy Spirit makes it clearer to me. And rejoicing should be a natural response as God is doing that work of revival in our hearts. Jump back briefly to the first half of verse 10 with me. Ezra directed them, go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks. And here's the phrase I want to focus on. Share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. What is Ezra, what is God through Ezra telling these people is a a natural, a genuine response to the word that we are convicted by that drives us to the gospel. You extend out in love to other people. 
He's saying, recognize the people in your community who are in need, who, who don't have the, the, even the food to, to rejoice with. And open, open up your home to them. Open up your hospitality to them. That is, friends, that is a natural response. That is a response that comes out of a heart that is being revived when we hear the Word and we're convicted by it and we're driven to the Gospel by it. That Then we begin to look around. Our radar goes out and we begin to notice those who are in need. We begin to notice those who may need nothing more than encouragement or support, but sometimes even those who have material needs. And, and the reality of the Gospel and what that is has and is doing in our lives makes us naturally extend to them. Let me share with you. Let me encourage you. Let me come alongside with you. Let me, let me help meet that material that you need that you have. The last point, beginning in verse 13. Uh, I'm not going to read all of these couple verses, but they come back a second day. On the second day of the month, they come back and they gather around Ezra the scribe to go over the law in greater detail. They're coming back for more Bible study. They want to dig deeper. And what is it? Verse 14, they find something written in the law. And for them, it's been there the whole time, but they've never seen this before. And you can read verses 14 and on about the description of the Feast of Tabernacles, but basically it's one of the feasts that God had given to them way back in Moses and Joshua's day that celebrates God's great faithfulness. And they haven't been doing it since Joshua's day. They haven't been doing it for literally almost a thousand years. They have not practiced this. And you would think at this point they would do what we would naturally do. Well, nobody's been doing that for a long time. And this is just, this is an insignificant thing, this, this feast. But what is their response that shows, I believe, that there is a genuine work of revival beginning in their lives? Verse 14, they find it written in the law that the Lord had commanded them to do this. And even though their human justifications may have said, nobody around us is doing this, this is such a little thing, verse 16, so the people went out and basically they obeyed it. A true response of revival in our hearts when we are convicted by the Word and we see something, maybe even something that seems insignificant, something that no one else around us may seem to be doing, is we respond by walking in obedience. We desire to obey what He's showing us. We desire to obey what He's convicting us, even if it's something new, even if it's something that's been overlooked by everybody else, even in the little things that God shows us to do. There's much more we'll see about God's reviving work in His people in the next couple chapters. But let me just close with this. You, you know, some of you may know this, some of you may not. The end of this month of October is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And while there's much we could say about the Protestant Reformation, at its heart, the Reformation was a revival of God's Word like God is doing here in Nehemiah 8. It, is, it was a renewed focus on the Bible that had been neglected, that had even been restricted by the Catholic Church. And out of the Protestant Reformation, God used men like John Wycliffe and William Tyndale to translate the Bible so you and I have it in English, so we can read it. The fact that we even have Bibles today and that we can read Bibles was God's work through the Protestant Reformation. In the Protestant Reformation, God raised up men like John Calvin, 
who modeled expository preaching, not dry, dead preaching, but preaching which raised up the word in, in, in all of its glory and unpacked it and explained it and applied it. The Protestant Reformation renewed the emphasis on Scripture and the importance of Scripture to our lives became one of its most important themes. It shaped our lives. God was doing a work in the Protestant Reformation that He was doing in Nehemiah 8, a work that I believe God wants to renew today. God wants as His way of reviving, bringing revival to central, bringing revival to our nation, bringing revival where He brings it across this Word, God wants to begin by renewing renewing His emphasis on Scripture, on how He wants the Word of God to be taught, to be explained, to be revered, to be understood, to be applied, for that is one of the things that He uses to ignite true revival. Maybe I can close with these words of an old hymn writer of the 19th century, Albert Midlane, Revive Thy work, O Lord. What a wonderful prayer that we could pray even thinking about the importance of Scripture. Revive Thy work, O Lord. Create soul thirst for Thee and hungering for the bread of life. O may our spirits be. May God do that work of revival. May He give us that hunger for His Word. May He use that growing hunger for His Word to ignite the revival that He wants to bring in and beyond the walls of our church. Let's pray. Father, we worship you as a God who is not only real, but who reveals himself. We thank you for your revelation of yourself, most clearly in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your fuller revelation of, of who you are and all your purposes that you reveal to us and how it is that we're to relate to you in your word, the Holy Scriptures. And Lord, we, we pray for this work of revival, this beginning work of revival where you would create a hunger in our hearts. Many of us, Lord, are, are probably like the Jews of Nehemiah's day. Up until this point, we've had little or no hunger. And we ask, Lord, that you do this work, stirring revival in our hearts. Make our hearts hunger for your word and use that hunger, Lord, to spark the revival that you want to bring in our lives and in our circles of family and friends, and in our church and beyond. Lord, we pray that you'd begin that revival in each of us personally. And we pray that you would humble us, that you would bring us to a place where we are on our knees looking to you, desperate for you to do that work of renewing our faith, of bringing what's cold to hot fire again. We pray this, that Jesus Christ would be lifted up and you would be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.